Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Habakkuk. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. I'm going to pray. Um, I want you to turn to your table of contents and find this book in the, in the minor prophets of the Old Testament called Habakkuk. All right, and if you need to turn to your table of contents, there's, that's perfectly, perfectly fine. It's, a, it's tucked away. It's a small little book back in the, those minor prophets. We're going to be finishing up chapter one today and starting in chapter two. It's an awesome book. You're going to see a verse that is um, quoted about three times in the New Testament this morning as we get into chapter two, verse four. So some of it will sound familiar to you, which is great. As you guys are turning, finding Habakkuk, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you so much again for, um, just for our church family here, Lord. Thank you for the brothers and sisters in Christ that you've put together in this, in this body that we call Tulsa Bible Church. The love that we have for one another, the fellowship, um, the hearts to serve. Lord, we, uh, we do certainly lift up Ruth and Marwin and, and just ask as they start their married life together, that you would bless them abundantly, uh, that you would draw them so close to one another, help them to understand each other, to study each other, to know each other extremely well, but not half as good as they know you. And if they do that, if they study and, and learn and pursue who you are in personal relationship, we know that their marriage will stand the test of time. No questions about it. I ask that you would... Uh, for the next several minutes that we have here today, just open our minds and our hearts to understand this little prophet that's tucked away. The world in which we live, we experience um, the same kind of chaos and just turmoil. We pray that uh, the words that are thousands of years old will speak to us in a new and a fresh way this morning. We ask that to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen. Well, I first heard this story, I might have shared it with you before, I first heard this, this story at my commencement address at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I want to share it again because it's so appropriate for this passage. It goes something like this. In 1938, there was a very successful businessman that lived in New York, and he had a hobby of watching the weather and, and tracking climate changes. And he wanted nothing more than to have his own personal brass barometer. And so in 1938, when you wanted to purchase something like that, you went to this thing called a Sears catalog. Any of you guys heard of this before? He flipped through the pages. He found the Sears catalog. He found the exact brass barometer that he wanted. He stroked a check. He put it in the mail, and he sent it off to get this barometer so that he could learn just atmospheric pressure and just engage in this way as a hobby. Sure enough, a week later, this box arrives in his mailbox, and he's super excited to unwrap it. He, he rips the tape off the box, he opens it up and unwraps it, and he looks at it, and he holds his hand, and he is just beaming with joy and excitement. And he looks down a little bit closer, and all of a sudden, his countenance changed drastically. The smiles and the joy went from a kind of a, a confused, pondered look. The needle on that brass barometer was stuck at 28, couldn't figure it out. 
So he slaps it a couple times, just like I would do with my laptop computer when it's not working. He shakes it, he bangs it against the counter a few times, and sure enough, this thing, it's just, it's not budging. And so he wrapped it back in the package and sadly uh, put it right back in the box that it came in. On his way to work the next morning, he dropped it in the mailbox, which it came. On his way home that evening, his mailbox was gone. The hurricane of 1938, the great New England hurricane struck. He was warned by the truth. And he sent it packing. Habakkuk is this, he's this prophet that's a, a truth seeker. He wants the truth. And mark it well, there are going to be hurricanes that come into your life and my life the same way that hurricanes came into his life in Israel. In your life, in your marriage, your families, your jobs, the temptation is going to be for you and I to take God's word, which we are reading today, and question, has God really said that? The temptation to be forget in the dark what we have learned in the light, to question God rather than trust him. The temptation was all too real for Habakkuk. Habakkuk is the prophet who questioned God. He saw violence in Judah, and he asked, how long is this going to last, O God? He heard God's plan to use the Babylonians, and he asked again, why in the world are you going to use this wicked pagan nation against us? This book surfaces some very deep, thought-provoking questions in terms of our theology and who God is and how he works. Why do the righteous suffer while wicked people, people prosper? If God is sovereign and in control, why doesn't he take better care of his people? Why is there so much injustice in the world? What kind of God sanctions a wicked pagan nation to ruthlessly overtake the weaker nations and the weaker people groups? Those kinds of questions shake us. Oftentimes they make us second-guess God, wonder at least what he's doing. Later on in that commencement address, Dennis Rainey was our speaker. I'll never forget what he said. He said, there's a man in his life by the name of, um, I think it was Dan, Dan Hutton or something. I can't remember exactly what it was now. But he said, he gave him a quote, stuck with him for the rest of his life, and it goes something like this. I've spent a long time trying to come to grips with my doubts when suddenly I realized I had better come to grips with what I believe. I have since moved from the agony of questions that I cannot answer to the reality of answers that I cannot escape. And he said, it's a great relief. Habakkuk wrestles with some questions, and he also provides some answers that we cannot escape. And I want to look at those this morning at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Remember the structure for Habakkuk? Uh, he starts out with two laments, and there's a question and answer structure that cycles through, again, two times. So at the beginning of this book, Habakkuk 1, 1 through 4, he questions God. Why is all this about to happen to us? Why are you not ending this injustice? And God answers. He says, I am dealing justly with you. I'm raising up the Babylonians. Then he he goes into a lament again. He questions God for the second time. The second time he says, I'm going to use the Babylonians, but 
they also will experience the justice of God. So in Habakkuk 1, 12 through 2, chapter 2, verse 4, we're going to see two things in this passage. The first thing he's going to tell us is this. Number one, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 4. Trust God more than you trust anything else. Trust God more than you trust anything. Look down at your text, Habakkuk 1, verse 12. The prophet raises his questions once again. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. And you guys might have a note in your Bibles. If you've got a study Bible there, there's a, that's a scribal error, um, error in quotation marks. The, uh, the scribes and the, the prophets, the translators, the writers of Holy Scripture, they were so concerned with saying anything that would negatively be associated with God that they would not use you, the first person, First, second, or the second person singular pronoun here for God. Instead, they put we in there because they didn't want anybody to slightly confuse God's character in any way. So that should read, you shall not die. You are eternal, Lord. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. You, O rock, have established them for reproof. And the them there is the Babylonians, for judgment and reproof upon Israel. Verse 13, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors, Babylonians, and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man who is more righteous than he? I heard a statement this week on a podcast, not sure where it originated, but it went something like this. Never heard of this before. I think it's really good. I'd rather be wrong on an important point rather than right on a trivial one. You guys heard that before? That would be wrong on an important point than right on a trivial one. That's a statement from somebody who prioritizes and values the truth. They don't want to get caught up in mundane, traditional side issues. They're much more concerned about the important, the significant matters of life, matters of truth. And based on what he's written, Habakkuk, we can say that without a shadow of a doubt, he is a prophet who cares deeply about truth, not trivial things. He's also a prophet that's struggling with doubts, and his dilemma is this. Habakkuk knows the truth about God in his mind. He's a prophet in Israel. In his experience, he can't reconcile that truth with what's going on in Judah and what's about to happen in Judah. And at this moment, when he desperately needs faith, we find him kind of leaning into a, a fear category instead. Even in the midst of his doubts, as he wrestles with his faith, at, with his faith excuse me, he, uh, he talks about the character of God, truth that really matters. And here's the first thing he says, verse 12. It starts with a, a rhetorical question that assumes an affirmative answer. When you read verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, it, it requires a positive, aff affirming answer. Of course, I'm from everlast everlasting. The God of Israel that Habakkuk knows is not a Johnny-come-lately God. 
He is from everlasting and to everlasting. When we talk about God's everlasting character, we mean to say that he has no beginning and he will have no end. Listen to Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I love what A.W. Tozer says in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. He says, began is a time word that can have no personal meaning for the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. Since God is everlasting, he is forever a safe home for time-driven people like you and me. Habakkuk, secondly, first he talks about his everlasting character. Secondly, he addresses God as Lord. And whenever you see Lord in all caps in your Old Testament, make a special reference to that. That's the personal name that the Lord God has revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, the relational covenant-keeping name of God. This is the name that God will use when he deals specifically with his people, the relationship, the promises that he has made to Israel throughout the generations are typified and symbolized and captured in this name of Yahweh, the Lord, when it's in all caps. Remember, the name was first revealed to Moses as a consuming fire, a burning bush. When we think about the Lord in all caps, the covenant-keeping God, the images that come into our mind are, no matter how sinful that we are, no matter how far we wander away from him, he will always love us. He will always show care. He will always show us his grace and mercy when we least deserve it. God is there for us. And that image brings off uh, a flavor of God that's, that's tender and kind. But when you realize that this is the name that was revealed to Moses in a consuming fire, we see not only that the Lord is the, uh, the gentle lamb of God, but also the ferocious and terrifying lion of Judah at the same time. He is the all-consuming fire. I love what one woman has said. God is the I am that I am, not the I am that I wish. He is who he is. Not always who we wish he is or wish he would be. It's very ironic and revealing about Habakkuk's heart here that he appeals and he calls on the Lord, the covenant faithful God when he feels like he is not being faithful to his covenant at all. He is tapping into what he knows about the character of God. Thirdly, Habakkuk also refers to God as a rock. That is a description that, that brings up permanence, stability, and refuge. An image that was first brought out in Deuteronomy 32. It's a poetic section at the end of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And whenever you see those poems in those first five books, pay attention. It's a structural marker that unites all of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Right before Moses dies, he appeals to God as a rock, his refuge, his stability. Whenever this aspect of God's character is revealed, look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. Whenever, whenever this aspect of God's character is revealed in Scripture, it is almost always juxtaposed with the character of humans, humanity. God is a refuge. He is permanent. He is stable. He is trustworthy. Mankind is all the opposite of those things. Unstable, unsettled, unreliable. God is a, a rock 
in Habakkuk's questioning world. He wants him to be a rock. Fourthly, God is holy. And that root word for holy means set apart. God is unique. He is distinct. Theologians have tried for centuries to find a different word to describe what holiness actually is in the Old Testament. And try as they may, they can't come up with another word to better describe him rather than holy. Unlike everlasting and covenant-keeping God, God's holiness is not one of his attributes among many. Holiness is a description that describes all of the attributes at the same time. It's a summary description of all that God is in comparison to everything else that he has created. It's not just that God is love. It's that God's love is holy. It's not just that he is merciful. It's that his mercy is holy. It's not just that he is kind. It's that he is a holy kindness. It's a kindness that is unlike anything else that we experience in this world. It is unique to him. To say that God is holy is to describe God with a uniqueness from everything else that is common. God's holiness means that there is simply no one and nothing like God. He is totally unique. And so Habakkuk knows God is everlasting. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is the great I am. He is a rock. He is holy. He is distinct. He is unique. But he's struggling to reconcile that faith with what he's experiencing, the reality of what's about to happen in Judah. And so, again, he questions God. Look at the end of verse 13. Why do you look idly at traitors? Why do you remain silent? After all, you're a rock. You're holy. (laughs) You're all these things. When the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You get the impression that his faith is beginning to falter here which happens all too often for us as Christians. I want you to mark something real clearly in your minds as you think about Habakkuk. You're in my greatest battles that we will ever face in life are not battles of, will you take this job? Are you going to marry this person? Are you going to put this amount into your retirement account? They're not even battles of how you're going to raise your kids. The greatest battle that you and I are ever going to face in life is this one question. Who are you going to believe? In what or whom are you going to place your faith? Will you place your faith in God or will you place your faith in a poor substitute? Martin Luther said that faith is taking the first step on the staircase even when you can't see it. And I love the words from Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great doctor turned preacher. He said, faith is the refusal to panic. It's exactly what Habakkuk needed at this time. Look down at verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook. He here is personifying Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. He drags them out with his net. He gathers, gathers them in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. Any fishermen out there in the crowd today? You guys got some special lures that you just love to catch those fish on? It's a great, great imagery going on here. Uh, the, the prophet is picturing Israel like a, 
a school of innocent fish, and Babylon is the great fisherman, just reeling them in over and over again, endlessly. Brings them up with a hook and his dragnet, out with his dragnet. He gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and glad. Verse 16, therefore he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury. His food is rich. And then finally, verse 17, another question. Is he then to keep on emptying his net, mercilessly killing nations forever? This is quintessential prophetic imagery when you read this at the end of chapter 1. Habakkuk depicts two entities that oppose one another. You've got the hunter and the hunted. You've got predator and prey. Israel is on the weaker side of the equation here. They're in verse 14. They're the helpless school of fish. They are a people with no leader. Remember, first it was the Egyptians that took over Jehoiakim. Then the Babylonians took over their king. He was a puppet king. Did whatever they wanted him to do. Babylon, verses 15 through 17, is depicted with sharp hooks, massive necks, and these dragnets. And the weapons of war that Babylon uses are, are these sharp hooks. They they provide not only for their livelihood, but also so that they can live lives of luxury. They are an idolatrous people, looking to their military to secure them, keep them safe and comfortable in their homeland. The military is ruthlessly going to overtake Israel and Judah. Verse 17, Habakkuk is again perplexed. How can God allow this wicked, merciless nation to keep doing what they're doing. And there's a repeated echo as we read these verses. You have got to trust God more than you trust anything. Don't be like the Babylonians. Don't trust in your military. They will not save you. Trust me. You've got to trust me more than you trust anyone else in your life. The second point is exactly like it. Trust God more than you trust anything. Number two, Seek God more than you seek anyone. Seek God more than you seek anyone. Amos chapter 5 is a, is a great passage. You should put just a little marker in your margins if you don't already have it there. And, and I don't want you to turn there. The prophet Amos said in Amos chapter 5 verse 4, Thus says the Lord God, Seek me that you might live. Just a few verses down, verse 14, he goes on with a slightly different twist. Seek God and not evil that you might live. And one other point in that chapter, he goes on to say again, seek the Lord that you might live. The question is, why in the world would the Lord God of heaven and the entire universe command us to seek him and warn us of the deadly consequences of sin? And the answer is very simple. When the bottom falls out of our life and we go through pain and suffering, sin will seek to destroy us. Sin is crouching behind the door. Sin is a, a lion waiting to pounce on its prey. There's a famous story that's uh, told about the church father, Augustine, how he first trusted Christ. Augustine was a young man who was riddled with lust and a temptation towards sexual sin. And he even entered into a relationship with another woman in order to fulfill that lust. He finally came to know the Lord when, it, when he had a, the words of God that just came to him as he was outside. And it was a passage from Romans chapter 13, verse 14. And it said something like this, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ 
and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And the first time in his life, Augustine sought God more than he sought the passing pleasures of sin. He became a believer, one of the most influential voices in the history of our church. Before we continue in chapter 2, I want to stop here and just provide a, a needed preface. There is no more important passage in this entire book than chapter 2, verse 4. So important it is that it is quoted, alluded to, and referenced in the New Testament at very strategic and important times, at least three or four times. The verse that the Apostle Paul used as the great theme for his magnum opus in Romans 1, 16 and 17 was that the righteous man will live by his faith. The verse that launched the Reformation in Germany, that the monk turned lawyer turned preacher, theologian Martin Luther used to bring reformation to an entire continent and a nation, was this verse in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Habakkuk was a prophet who endured what he perceived as the maddening silence of God. And what does he do? What should you and I do when we go through suffering and we feel like the Lord is silent in our hearts and our lives? Not even a prophet of God can force God to answer you can't manipulate God into paying attention to you. You can't speak louder and know that he's going to hear you any differently than if you didn't speak at all, simply prayed in your mind. All the prophet can do is the same thing that you and I can do. All he could do is sit and wait to hear from the Lord what he was going to reveal. I want to close by looking at these verses and uh, give you three points of application before we take the Lord's Supper at the end of the service today. Look down at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. The prophet says, after he questions God, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. I will look out to see what he will say to me, what I will answer concerning my complaint. Number one. Successful operation is a product of preparation. Success, successfully operating in the will of God is a product of preparing your hearts and minds, knowing that he's going to, to work, knowing he has revealed himself to you. Habakkuk purposed to take his stand upon his watch, and it was there that he prepared himself. The Hebrew here is interesting because it emphasizes Habakkuk's actions more than his location, he took his stand. He watched. We should read the resolve of this prophet very literally. Just like a, a person in the military, a watchman at his post and at his delegated time will take his stand and carry out his duty, Habakkuk does the very same thing, waiting for God, listening for God. I find it interesting that as he questioned God, Habakkuk withdrew from normal life and society. He got in a quiet place to listen not be caught up in the humdrum of daily life, to focus his attention, his thoughts, and his heart on the Lord and on his revelation to us. He needed time to concentrate specifically on God and what he was going to say to him. Jesus himself regularly took his departure from the disciples, from the crowds, and he went away and he did what? He prayed. 
Remember when the disciples were looking for him? Jesus, where were you? We were looking all over for you. Man, look, I just went away to pray for a while. You guys, calm down a little bit. So this is a great example of what prophets do in the Old Testament. It's exactly what you and I should be doing in our walk with the Lord. I love what Abraham Lincoln said about preparation. If I had six hours to cut down a tree, I'd use the first four hours to sharpen my axe. I love what Spurgeon said for preachers. He said, I don't prepare the sermon. I prepare the preacher, the heart of the preacher. That's what's going to communicate. Your and my entire life should be lived in preparation to see the king. And successful operation in carrying out God's will starts with dedicated preparation of our hearts and minds, seeking out God. Number two, in order to carry out God's will, revelation must be accompanied by determination. Revelation must be accompanied by determination. God's about to reveal himself to Habakkuk. Is he going to be determined to carry out what the Lord is asking him to do? Is he going to listen? Is he going to stubbornly raise his flag and his arms against the Lord and question him yet again, perhaps? Down at verse 2, chapter 2. The Lord answered me, write the vision. Here's what the Lord does. He, gives him, he answers his questions with a vision. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he who runs will read it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems to be slow. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God's vision to Habakkuk is both clear and certain. Verse 2 says, make it plain so that he can read it. And the Hebrew emphasizes the running of the reader rather than the reading of the runner, if that makes sense. This passage is emphasizing the obedience the resolve to carry out this revelation, this vision that the Lord is giving Habakkuk. The effectiveness of the reader is in what he does with the message. We just heard this in James. Be a doer of the word, not merely a hearer who deludes himself. The person who reads this message will adopt it as a guide for living. It will become their guidepost, their measurement, their marker. Now, whatever the Lord has revealed about himself, if we know nothing else, we are going to stick to that revelation. And we're going to live our lives by that revelation, by that truth that he has given us to live by. Again, the ministry of a prophet here is the same ministry that needs to happen in all of our lives as the Lord reveals himself to us in his word. Habakkuk displays himself as a prophet determined to respond when he hears the word of God. He has no independent wisdom of his own. Christians, have no independent wisdom of your own. Where does wisdom start? By the fear of the Lord. And so we appeal to God's wisdom, knowing that earthly, human, mankind's wisdom is nothing compared to the divine word from the Lord. We seek after wisdom like we are searching for hidden treasure. We do everything we can. We drop everything we have. We sell everything we have in order to gain wisdom from the Lord. And we'll be guided by that wisdom. One man has said it is a wise man who takes his questions about God to God for answers. It is a wise man who takes his questions about God to God for answers. Have you determined to step away from the world and quietly listen to God's word? Have you already told yourself that if you don't get anything else in this life, you will seek after and search after God's wisdom 
Have you made a determination in your own heart and mind that if you don't have anything else, you've got the sufficiency of God's word, the authority, the inspiration, the inerrancy of this text of scripture guiding you through everything in life? It will not teach you how to hammer a nail. It will not teach you how to swing a golf club, although I wish it would, because I struggle to get back there at square. It will teach you how to do all that with godliness, which is so much more important. He will give you everything you need to live a life of effective godliness, walking day by day in this fallen, sinful, and oftentimes painful world. Revelation must be accompanied by determination. Chapter two, verse four, behold. This is really, really interesting, and it's so interesting, I'm gonna take another week to describe it. Behold, his soul is puffed up. Whose soul? First, you think it's, it's Babylon. Maybe even more inclusive than that. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Babylon is not the only problem for Israel. Israel is the problem for Israel. Pain and suffering in a fallen world is not the only problem for you and us. You and us are the problem for living in a fallen world. It's interesting what the prophet does here. It's interesting how the Lord reveals this vision. He says, Babylon's got a problem, and I'm going to end their injustice. And it's going to be just as swift as it was when they came in and took off Judah. But everybody else has the same exact problem in their hearts. Everybody else has pride that lurks beneath every other sin that you commit. That you convince yourself that you can live in your way, by your strength, by your wisdom, and you can do it better than anybody else without the help of anybody else, including God. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 is not just a verse for sinful Judah, although it's staring them right in the face for hope. It's a verse for all of us. It's a verse for all believers. That's why the Apostle Paul picks it up when he talks about the gospel. So all of us have a huge heart issue. Apart from God, we think we are going to save ourselves. Apart from God, we believe in ourselves. We struggle with unbelief in who he is, what he's doing in this world. And we desperately, desperately need him. Faith in God is the key to living a life that pleases the Lord. And God's about to answer Habakkuk with the whole counsel of God. He's going to tell him a story about the nations from the beginning of history till the end of time. And he's going to tell Habakkuk, here's what I want you to do. I want you to trust me. Although it looks chaotic and crazy in this world, and although all of us experience times of pain and suffering, I've got a plan. And it's going to come to fruition with the glorious return of my son and my Messiah on the throne of Israel forever and ever. Trust me. Trust me. Believe in me as you walk through this life. I've spent a long time trying to come to grips with my doubts. When suddenly I realized I had better come to grips with what I believe I have since gone from the agony of questions that I cannot answer 
to the reality of answers that I cannot escape. And it's a great relief. If you're interested in these answers, I want you to come back and we'll continue talking about Habakkuk. Let's pray. Uh, guys on the music team, you guys come up. Deacons, elders, helping to serve the Lord's Supper. If you don't mind going in the back right now, that'd be awesome. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love for us. God, I thank you that um, you have this magnificent, glorious plan to bring all this chaotic, confusing world to a culmination in a glorification of your son, Jesus. I pray that as we read through these these words, these verses in Habakkuk, we will be able to enter into them at the heart level in our own lives. And the things that we suffer and the pain that we experience, we can always take that back to who you are, trust and believe in you. That you are working this out for good, for you are a good, good God. We love you, we praise you, we worship you. We ask for faith in the next days, these next weeks to come, to believe what you have written for us believe that it is true. Father, we ask all these things through your son Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.